Hello and welcome to Solarpunk Presence, the companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures. Hosted by Solarpunk Magazine nonfiction editors extraordinaire Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. Ariel and I will be using this companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures to explore Solarpunk goings on in the world today. We'll be interviewing all sorts of interesting people who are doing work in the here and now that will help us get to a Solarpunk future. And we'll be talking to each other about the visions of a sustainable, equitable future integral to Solarpunk and about issues we're curious about within the movement or genre or whatever it is you want to call Solarpunk. Welcome to episode four, which will be hosted by Ariel Kroon. Even without the crushing heat waves, the mega droughts, the catastrophic floods, and savage storms, there's plenty about climate change to get you down. Not least of which has been humanity's inability to stop emitting so much greenhouse gas and put the brakes on its rampant destruction of wilderness. As solar punks, despair and grief surround us and can really make it difficult to live everyday life during the sixth extinction, never mind daring to hope and build for a better tomorrow. And so it's necessary to confront and process those negative emotions. How can we deal with the despair, the crippling anxiety, the existential dread that strikes in the middle of the night? Turns out, you can call a climate grief chaplain. Now, you might be wondering what exactly that might be. If that's the case, this is your lucky day, because I sat down with Gabrielle Gelderman, a climate grief chaplain and climate justice organizer from Edmonton, Alberta, to talk about exactly what climate grief chaplaincy is and how it can help people cope with their climate change-related grief and despair so that they can pick themselves back up and continue to fight the good fight. And now here's Ariel's conversation with chaplain Gabrielle Gelderman. If you could just tell me what is a climate grief chaplain, because that's something that's pretty unfamiliar to a lot of people. And so I'd love to sort of hear more from you directly about it. Yeah, definitely not something a lot of people would be familiar with. People generally sometimes don't even know what chaplains are. Chaplains provide spiritual and emotional care and support to people in various institutions. Uh, So hospitals, prisons, universities, corporations, the military, Mm. these are all places that uh, traditionally, historically, chaplains have served and and supported people. I work in a hospital setting. So it's a lot in the hospital, it's a lot of support, grief support, uh, support for people who are grieving loss, either of their own health or wellness or the loss of a loved one. And um, so climate grief chaplaincy is very similar, providing like the same kind of emotional and spiritual care to people who are struggling with the reality of the climate crisis and um, the impacts that it has had and will have on their life and the lives of their loved ones. So I kind of think of it, yeah, as like, um, you know, emotional and spiritual care is a bit of a broad term, but um, I also think of it in terms of like helping people find maps of meaning and connection that make their life meaningful and help them deal with the pain of loss and and keep going forward and find a reason to keep going essentially. Wow that sounds like really heavy but really important to do also. Could you tell me a little bit about your background and sort of how you came to climate grief chaplaincy? Like I'm curious as to why you decided to go into chaplaincy sort of specifically focusing on climate grief and so kind of could you tell me how you got to where you are now? I was raised in the church. I was raised Christian, kind of like many people had a, what's the 
emerged, uh, you know, had experienced some like pretty intense disillusionment with the church and some, um, uh, yeah, like really moved, moved away from it for certain periods of my young adult life. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, kind of before I went back to spirituality, I actually started doing climate organizing and um, spent a couple years doing that, but experienced my own really intense period of climate grief and climate anxiety, where I kind of like realized that, you know, the, the frameworks, the secular kind of frameworks that we had weren't enough for me to like actually grapple with what was coming. So the kind of like scientific or political or secular frameworks of meaning for me personally, just like fell so short when we're facing the levels of suffering and destruction that we're facing. Right. And so that was my climate grief experience was like also a deep spiritual crisis. I was really like, is God real? Like what's, how could this happen? What's coming in the future? How do we, as an organizer, I was like, we keep losing. Like, we're not actually going to stop climate change. Like what, what does it mean to, to continue to like love the world in the face of like certain destruction? How do I keep doing that? And for me, I really needed to find like something deeper and something bigger to hold me. And for me, that was God, or I like use the language of God. And once I kind of went through that process, I really like was witnessing in a lot of my friends and comrades, like similar struggles with meaning and, um, and similar, some questions around like spirituality. And actually people were more open than I realized, or than I had predicted to conversations around spirituality. So that kind of encouraged me to go um, back to school for chaplaincy. The second thing that really encouraged me was an experience I had organizing where we ran a really intense campaign. We came really close to winning. It was a nomination race for a federal seat for the NDP. Mm -hmm. And we lost by like 17 votes or something. And uh, so this was the race for the NDP um, to be the nominee to run in the federal election. It wasn't for the federal election election was in 2019 I believe yeah so we uh we lost and we were devastated we had like poured our hearts into this campaign and it and then we um but the the most intense part wasn't actually losing it was going out to the bar afterwards and crying together we just like Mm. got drunk and cried and it was the first time I'd ever cried with people I was organizing with who were close friends of mine we'd like literally never all of us had all of these emotions around the climate crisis And because we finally had this opportunity, we we weren't just crying about the campaign. It was like grieving what felt like the campaign felt like a symbol for all of the, you know, like blood, sweat and tears that we'd poured into organizing work. And it felt like no matter what we did, it was never enough. And I remember feeling like, you know, this was the worst night we lost after like months of intense organizing. And yet I was like, why does this feel so good? Like, it feels so good to finally like have this release and finally be able to like cry with people I loved. And after that experience, I was like, oh, I've never been able to, we've never had spaces like this before. And I saw how much it meant to other people as well. And yeah, I wanted to have a play a part in helping create some more of those spaces. That sounds intense. Why do you think the climate grief chaplaincy is so necessary? I think um, maybe a good way to tackle this question is like to compare it I I did come to a crossroads where I was like should I do counseling therapy like psychotherapy that kind of route and do climate focused therapy or should I go the chaplaincy route and I really what I loved about chaplaincy beyond just like my own beliefs and spirituality and how important that was to me 
is how chaplaincy historically like has had more of a role in like collective forms of grief and collective ritual and ceremony around mourning and around grieving. So like traditionally like running um, or uh, hosting like a, a memorial service for, for people mm -hmm. or someone who's died, um, which a therapist wouldn't net, you know, normally do those same sorts of roles. And um, for me, I think, I mean, neoliberalism has, has led to therapy being a very individualized process for the most part, although there's group therapy, but that's way less common. And yeah, I'm just like really, I mean, my experience in the bar crying with my friends was like, oh, this is a group experience. Like it needs to be held in the container of a, of a group and a community. And I felt like chaplaincy allowed me to do more of that work. Yeah, so the necessity of chaplaincy we don't, we live in a secular society that's very like disenchanted, right? There's like very few shared rituals and spaces for, for grief. And um, I think chaplaincy is, you just have a bit more like wiggle room to create those spaces, I think, or a bit more license maybe to do it and license to like bring in the spiritual and bring in the, the mystery of love, of, of grief. Yeah, wow, that's powerful. Do you find that it's something that is sort of gaining more traction? I mean, you are the only climate grief chaplain that I know of and that I've met. So could you speak to that a bit? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, like going a bit more public with some of my work just this, like a month, the past couple months and like having uh, people reach out to me who were doing similar work and, and all, similarly, like weren't that connected to other people doing the work. So they're definitely out there. Um, there's definitely a lot more like people doing it from the therapy or counseling perspective, I think. But there's a, a, an organization called Faith Matters Network and they actually, they're out of the States and they run a program called like a training, a brief kind of training certificate for movement chaplaincy, they call it. And so it's like social movement chaplaincy. And there's like hundreds of people who are signed up for this one cohort that I'm currently in. So it's, movement social movement chaplaincy is is a lot more established in the states because the united states just has a like much bigger like social movement ecosystem anyways so it makes sense that they have more chaplains that are in that ecosystem so some of those chaplains are doing like specifically climate grief work i've seen people who have, are doing working for sunrise and other kind of like youth-led stuff it's interesting because i've like heard this a lot from people who are like oh climate grief work is like the cutting edge or it's like new and you know like hasn't been done before and there's like a whole history and lineage of of movement chaplains in like the civil rights movement for example in like queer liberation movements like i feel like every social movement in the past has had forms of spiritual support the thing about climate the climate movement is it's like the first time this is how I see it. It's the first time that like a lot of white people are involved in a social movement because it's also the first time in the West that white people, privileged white people are like, oh, my own survival is at risk. Right. And that's not how we've seen social movements in the past. We like haven't ever felt like we were existentially targeted and climate right. change is really different. So I definitely feel like, yeah, climate grief chaplaincy is new. Movement chaplaincy is very much not new. Yeah, I, I like entered into social movements through climate change. So that's like been a focus of my work. But you also see doing this work, um, movement chaplaincy work is how interconnected all of these fights are. Like the fight for climate justice is intricately interwoven with obviously anti-capitalism 
anti-racism, anti-racist work as well. And for me, like I use the language of liberation as many others do to talk about how connected those fights are. I was not aware of, of movement chaplaincy being such a big thing. And it it's not really something that you get taught or that is sort of easily available knowledge to have. But thinking about it, I'm like, oh, duh, of course, you know, that would totally make sense, especially since a lot of people within movements are brought up in very religious spaces. And, you know, like you can't exactly just cut off that avenue of support without having quite a bit of grief and quite a bit of feeling like you need something there. I just want to go back to, you said you use the language of God, and that's really interesting to me. I know you were raised in the Christian church. Do you minister sort of more to Christian people or to people of all faiths or um, secular people, sort of what has been your experience with that? Definitely people of all belief systems and backgrounds. The hospital has been a good training ground for that. There's like we're as chaplains, we're there to serve patients of any belief system. So I've, I've gotten practice in like using the language that the person I'm sitting across from, whatever language they use is what I try and adopt. So yeah, I really think of Christianity and the Bible as like a series of like stories and metaphors and a shared language that people can use to talk about these like big, beautiful mysteries. Talking to someone who does use those Christian stories is a different experience for me. Parts of it are easier because we have some like shared understanding already. But yeah, there's also like beautiful challenges and it can be really interesting to work with some people who don't consider them even consider themselves spiritual who actually do have like a deep understanding and a deep belief and a deep trust in love or in connection to their ancestors or lots of people in the hospital, like a deep, profound love for their pets, like really kind of beautiful. It's beautiful to like uncover the ways that people find deep meaning and deep relationality in the world around them. So I'm, I'm representing solar punk magazine right now. And, um, so solar punk is a movement in art, literature, fashion, music, politics, infrastructure. It's also characterized, though, by sort of positivity and hope for a better tomorrow, despite the conditions we're living in. So like you said, you know, a lot of people in solar punk do come from movement spaces where they've been tackling climate climate disaster challenges and they just keep losing and losing and losing. But despite that, they sort of cling to solar punk because it is a positive force that emphasizes community and emphasizes that we might not be able to get out of this, but we're in it together. It sort of has what I've, I've seen referred to by various theorists as, as sort of uh, radical hope or, or grounded hope that's sort of grounded in the material conditions in which people live, kind of acknowledges that the, the mess that we're in and decides to do something about it. And so part of the reason that I wanted to talk to you is because I see the work that you do as a critical step in building some sort of effective or, or emotional literacy and community and momentum that way. Would that be accurate to your experience? Yeah, the question of like hope is comes up all the time. And it's, I, I like those phrases of like radical hope and grounded hope and I've heard what else, like hope as a discipline, like rugged hope, I think of the, mm. that term sometimes. 
I think, yeah, oh, and the, that phrase emotional literacy is really good. I haven't thought of it in those terms necessarily, but I really, yeah, I, I do think of the work as like helping people, giving, helping people create the spaces where they can expand their tolerance or increase their tolerance for a range of emotions. And when I say range, it truly is a range because when we, when we make space for ourselves to feel the pain and the suffering that's already there, it's just buried because we can't mm -hmm. deal with it on our own. But when we have collective spaces, that grief and pain rises to the surface and we, we actually feel it like in our bodies, which is difficult and painful. But then it, that opens our bodies up to also feeling, of course, the, the, the more enjoyable or pleasurable emotions of like love and deep connection. And so, yeah, the emotional literacy of like helping people expand that tolerance and also like name what they're feeling and um, identify it and like validate it as a, a, a real and important part of the human experience and honor those feelings for what they are, for sure, like gives people this sense of, of like groundedness and resilience and strength, I think that, that helps us moving forward into the future yeah to to both like sustain organizers and sustain people in the movement so that we can continue to build a, you know the world we want and continue to like yeah deepen our our relationships to ourselves and each other I was going to go somewhere else with that but I forget <laughs> yeah sustain the good work oh and like I think just help us yeah sustain the good work I guess you can think of it sometimes as like we need to sustain the energy for the fight but as we continue to lose or like sometimes win and sometimes lose I think there also just needs to be something deeper than the fight you know like something that we're grounded in something that's deeper than the wins and the losses that's deeper than just the outcomes of our actual interventions or our whatever our um, campaigns or actions mm -hmm. um and to me like grief helps us get at that deeper foundation which is for lots of people is like community right however right. they define community yeah, when you were talking, I was thinking about uh, how maybe uh, the sort of communal sharing of grief can help uh, with organizers and and burnout. Maybe um, yeah. have you have you found that to be helpful? Definitely. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like, I've really felt this in the past, and like during the fifth wave, like I've just sensed that people are really hitting a wall. Like they've organizers especially and well, I think everybody but yeah just like really intense burnout in a lot of people and I, I I wrote this Instagram post that got like so much traction I was pretty surprised because it was pretty grim <laughs> it was like it was like encouraging organizers um who felt despair and burnout to like move keep moving into the despair which is not like a typical advice that you would get but people like really resonated with it and and like wrestled with it I got some people like feedback of like I need to I need to like think about this more like this is a hard thing to grasp but right. for me the like burnout is a, is an opportunity I use this quote from Parker Palmer who's a, actually a Christian writer but he writes about depression in a really beautiful way but I think of it in the same way as despair he writes why not let despair or depression can you think of it as a friend that is pushing you down onto ground on which it is safe to stand? Oh. And I think of like despair as like this, yeah, like a heavy weight. We're like encountered with the heaviness of the suffering of ourselves and the world and the future. And it pushes us down and it, we like lose all of these things that used to give us a sense of support and meaning like our organizing work or 
whatever, like those things start to like fall apart. And really it's like, you have, you find out what's left when nothing is left. So that's why you got to keep going down. Cause you do have to like find what's there, I think to, in order to like be able to sustain this work in the long term. And of course, for me, I'm like, oh, there's something there. Like I have like a deep belief that there's that love is this like universal, infinite, perfect reality that's holding us in all that we do. But, and, and I, I have that trust because I've experienced it, but also because I'm part of a tradition that gives us that framework of understanding. But so many people who weren't raised in the church or were raised and harmed or like traumatized, frankly, by the church, don't have that same trust that there's something there at the bottom to catch them. So I think the beauty of climate grief spaces, collective spaces, are like moving together to find what's on the, what's, what's that ground? Like, how can we hold each other as we like find that and not feel like we're in a free fall? Wow. Talk about sustainability, you know, (laughs) we need to find something that sustains us through this. I really see despair as, as very necessary to hope. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Hannah McGregor and her guest, but she said something along the lines of, you can't hope from nowhere. There has to be something that you're, like you have to locate your, your, your hope somewhere. And quite often that hope is located in that ground, that positionality. So I see despair as kind of something that really causes you to reevaluate the ground on which you stand and makes possible the conditions for hope. Not always. Um, I don't want to speak to, you know, like generally or anything like that. This is just in my experience, despair does take you down. Um, and it's when you get to the bottom that you find a way to get back up. But first you have to get down there. If you're able to share, are there any surprising things that you've sort of encountered in your work to date uh, around sort of organizers and climate change? Lots. Yes. A lot has been very surprising. <laughs> I like did my thesis research on this last year and conducted a couple workshops with nine participants. And so I did, of course, all this literature review for months and months before actually doing the research. Mm-hmm. And um, I really went in and being like, well, I know most of everything about climate grief that there is to know, you know, typical like, uh, yeah, delusion. And <laughs> then I actually had these experiences with the participants and they were, yeah, like really profound. Some of them really subtle experiences, but really kind of changed my understanding and very much deepened my understanding of climate grief in organizers in particular. One of the notable surprises was numbness. There was so much numbness in people. And the interesting thing was like, as participants like had a space where they trusted each other and felt safe to like, let that numbness kind of like thaw. The first thing that arose was, was pain but it actually wasn't the pain of climate grief. It was the pain of realizing how numb they had been. And, and I don't know if this was the case for everyone, but for sure several people, and it like resonated deeply with me because I think, you know, numbing is a necessary coping mechanism and we like have to do it because of the society we live in. But it's so, you know, people realize like how much it's like diminished their sense of life and their ability to like, experience love and experience connection and experience grief right to me that was so huge because it also is a reminder of like the problem isn't grief 
itself. Like grief is never a problem. Grief is like a natural good process that's like deeply transformative and healing. The problem is loneliness and isolation. Because when we're alone, we can't actually deal with our grief. Our bodies like won't let us because it's too overwhelming to do on our own. We really like literally need other people. And so when that grief gets stuck, when you're on your own, it's like, that's what causes us to be numb. That's what causes us to burn out. That's what causes people to get bitter and angry and lose connection to the deeper reason why they're doing organizing work. And those are the problems. Like that's what is, that's what hurts me to see in people. Like when I see people in places of deep grief and suffering and despair, but they're expressing it and they're sharing it with someone, that's like beautiful. And it's hard. And it's also like, I wish we didn't have to feel this much pain, but I'm like, that's what we're supposed to be doing as humans. When I see someone who's like isolated with it and, and can't access it or feels yeah, alone. That's what's mm. really like, to me, that's the tragedy, right? So that was a big one. And then the other like surprising thing was how much this literally, like people said this word for word, it was so interesting. They were like, the people who felt a sense of connection to something beyond the group, something bigger than themselves, whether it was like the organizing community in Edmonton or, or the climate movement as a whole, or the world itself, like people had all different ways of feeling a sense of connection. The people who really like tapped into that bigger thing, whatever it was, they were also the ones who literally would say like, I feel like I can face what's coming. I feel like I'm ready or like I'm more able to like face the pain of loss going forward. It was so interesting. And I kind of was like, as a theology student, I was studying, I, my master's degree was in theology. I was like, oh, that like, makes perfect sense of course when we're thinking of like a greater power or some you know something bigger than us that is such an important part of human the human experience but yeah it was kind of it was like of course and of course these this is like nine participants so it's not exactly like statistically <laughs> accurate but it was really kind of beautiful just to see people and and the thing is it was literally two workshops and they were each like two and a half hours mm-hmm. And that's like all it took for people to get to a place where they like reconnected with these big, whatever it was, experiences of community or liberation. And, and I don't think it was like a couple of them probably had pretty profound experiences, but you know, not all of them were like, oh, this was like a life-changing experience that, you know, is, you know, incredibly profound, but even these like simple processes of like grieving together in a simple way, I think can really help people sustained like you were saying yeah that's so interesting because I was thinking you know like oh climate grief chaplaincy like the nitty-gritty of like so how often do you have to (laughs) go to these grief cycles you know like because I'm thinking in the model of seeing a personal therapist and a lot of people spend years going to a therapist and that's just with one other person so I was assuming that with a bunch of other people oh of course it would take so much longer and it would be so much more difficult yeah but that's not the case no it's so interesting you say that yeah it's I think it's you do different kind of work like it's not Mm -hmm. the same detailed like self-analysis or like detailed digging into your past as you would do with a one-on-one therapist like psychotherapist Mm -hmm. but Yeah, I think, um, and I just took a course on group therapy and I've like had some experiences recently in groups 
in kind of a therapeutic setting. And it's like, it's actually amazing. You hear a lot of people say, not only is it as effective as one-on-one therapy, Mm. even in terms of like timelines, some people are like, it's more effective because of this like experience of community that you have, like an experience of embodied community. Really? Yeah. And it's like, when you think of it, like, of course, humans have evolved to live in like deeply communal settings, right? And so the model of like one-on-one therapy, I think is really good for some things, but also leaves people, yeah, lacking in, in other experiences or like that doesn't necessarily provide that community experience. So that was, that's been really interesting and like hopeful because these experiences, these group therapy experiences that I've been a part of, they're very much like, we don't need to go through everyone's story of their past. Like we don't actually need to dig into everything that's happened to you. What they really focus on in these sessions is like the here and now. It's very embodied. It's very like, what's hap- what's coming up for you right now? And can you name that and put it to the group and the group can hold it and honor it and like reflect back to you how they're experiencing you. It's very like simple, but it's very intimate because it's so deeply present and like grounded in the here and now. And it's essentially like from a chaplaincy perspective, it's really people like witnessing the humanity of each other and holding that. And that's really like really powerful and really validating. That's a little bit comforting to hear that, you know, like if I end up going to one of these circles, I'm not going to have to spill my guts or go into a detailed history of, you know, every single struggle I've had in my life with climate grief, because that would be a long list. And the idea of sharing that with effectively strangers right off the bat, like that terrifies me, right? But you're saying it's a lot less. I mean, I guess if, if people want to share, then then can they share? It kind of, yeah, it depends on like what the exercise is. Like I've done part of my thesis research workshops were narrative writing. So we had people, invited people to like write like part of their personal narrative and then share that. So that definitely people are like going into their past or they're invited to, they didn't have to, but sharing pieces of their story. But some of the circles, like during each grief circle, I'll end with like a sharing, a formal sharing circle. And when I do that, I invite people to share from their heart, like what's coming up for you right now? Or like, what are you experiencing right now? Even if those feelings are like, I feel, I still feel numb. I feel frustrated with myself because I can't actually access the emotions I want to. Or I feel self-conscious because I'm nervous about sharing with other people. Or, or I feel like there's this deep, yeah, well of grief that I like, I'm just like, I'm feeling it like, you know, I feel like I'm on the edge of it, kind of. Some people will say things like that. So those moments are a bit more like what's happening right now, but other activities, it's it's more open to storytelling. I was actually thinking about how, you know, we're 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 talking about community and collectivity. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. And that's very hard, um, especially for, for people who are feeling very isolated to reach out to others because of that fear, uh, not only of, you know, like being, being vulnerable and honest with other people, but also of like, hey, maybe I'll catch a virus and uh, yeah. my life will be pretty shitty from now on. So sort of what, what are some ways to sort of like get around that? And, and how have you found sort of organizing in communal spaces right now? I haven't been doing a lot of like traditional organizing. I've heard from other people that it's been really, really hard to organize online because it takes away 
some of the most meaningful parts of organizing, which is like the in-person experience and the energy that you get from that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of people doing more like traditional organizing are really struggling with it. But in terms of the grief circles, like I've, um, it's been really nice because it, people can attend from all over. I mean, it's been North America so far, but people, yeah, can like call in from anywhere. And there's aspects of that I think are, are kind of powerful, especially if you are an organizer. It's, I felt when I've connected with people across the country or across North America, there's some beauty in knowing that there's people all over doing the same work that you and your like local comrades are doing, mm-hmm. feeling the same feelings you're feeling. And it's like, it does expand your experience of community from just your local organizing hub to the wider climate movement or liberation movement, whatever it may be. So that's been one silver lining, I guess you can say. And then it's actually interesting, like these group therapy experiences that I've had have all been on Zoom. And I went and been like, oh, I don't know if this is going to be the same experience because it's all virtual, but it's especially if the facilitators are are intentional about about it, it can be a really embodied experience still. You can really like, you know, through a grounding exercise or whatever, you, you connect with your body. And there's like simple things that a facilitator can do. Like uh, sometimes I'll invite people to just like take two minutes and like look at the people, the people's faces on their screen, like look at the little boxes and just like acknowledge each person and say thank you to them silently in your head or or you can do an embodied exercise where you imagine them standing next to you or like experience um, some sense of connection that transcends the space and time that's in between us so I think I think there's definitely ways to to get some of that embodied experience but it's never yeah it's it's never quite the same for sure sounds like you'd need to sort of stretch your your imaginative muscles a little bit. I want to thank you so much for for agreeing to do this interview with me and I feel like I'm coming away with a much better idea of what climate grief chaplaincy is and movement chaplaincy. I'm definitely going to look into that a little bit more and yeah just thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Where could our readers find you if they would like to know more or contact you or if that's okay? Of course. Yes, definitely. I'd love to hear from people all the time. I mean, I'm most active on Instagram, which my handle is at the climate chaplain. Mm-hmm. And then I have a link tree from there. People can find my website and there's contact info there as well. Well, we'll definitely put links down in, in our sort of description to all of those links that you mentioned. And thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. That brings us to the end of episode four. Thank you for listening to Solarpunk Presence, a series embedded within the Solarpunk Futures podcast, written, hosted, and produced by Christina Della Rocha and Ariel Kroon. This podcast is a part of Solarpunk Magazine, which is published by Android Press, which is located on Kalapuya Ulihi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Today, descendants are citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon, and the Confederated Tribes of the Silets Indians of Oregon. The opening and closing music for Solar Punk Presence is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol and is available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. So, thank you again for listening, and until the next episode, stay Solar Punk.